Well, we are one week into a new year. This is often a time of great anticipation, expectation, even excitement about how the year might unfold. At least for many it is. For others who may be facing more unpleasant possibilities, it can be a time of battling anxiety or or fear over what may lie ahead this year. Maybe you've had some tests done and you're awaiting the results. Or maybe you've been putting off even having the tests. Or maybe the results are in. Or you're otherwise in a, in a wait and watch as things develop stage. Or maybe it's not you who is facing a, a significant crossroads, but a family member or a close friend. You know a big change is coming for them. It's just a matter of whether it will be for the better or for the worse. At the start of a new year, whether you're filled with expectancy or anxiety, optimism or pessimism, either way, you you probably find yourself itching to know what is coming. One of the hardest parts of being a human being is is not knowing the future. What are the things that, that you would like to know about this year ahead? Things that are probably almost, if not entirely, outside of your control, but that you'd really like to know in advance. Suppose you knew that you wouldn't live to see another year. Or suppose you knew that no one would live to see another year. What would you do differently tomorrow if you knew? I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 13, verse 1. You can find it on page 50 in the second half of the Pew Bible. We're picking up at the end of the Tuesday before Good Friday. The Tuesday before Good Friday. Recall that Jesus and His disciples arrived in Jerusalem for the Passover feast on a Sunday, Palm Sunday. And then on Monday, Jesus cleared the temple of everyone engaged in business rather than in prayer. And then on Tuesday... After numerous confrontations in the temple with religious and political authorities, Jesus concluded his his public teaching ministry on the earth. He departed from the temple for the last time. Mark chapter 13, verse 1. I'm going to begin by reading the first eight verses. Hear the word of the Lord to you. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, What wonderful stones and and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Let us pray. 
Father, as we study Your Word, grow us in our knowledge of what we ought to know. Grow us in being at peace with what we cannot know. And grow us in our obedience to all that You have commanded. Bless the preaching of Your Word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, you probably recognize why we took a break from the series in Mark during Advent. An especially challenging and lengthy passage about coming judgment and the end of the world doesn't quite meet people's expectations for the Christmas season. So instead, we spent five weeks surveying the book of Exodus, noting all of the parallels between the birth of Israel's Savior and the birth of our Savior between Moses, who who delivered the Israelites from their earthly bondage, and Jesus, who delivered us from our spiritual bondage. Between Moses leading Israel on a long journey through the wilderness to the promised land, and Jesus, now leading us on a long journey through this wilderness to our eternal home. If you missed any installment in that five-part series, I encourage you, please go back and listen to it. The Gospel of Mark and the rest of the New Testament cannot be rightly understood apart from a firm grasp of the Old Testament, especially the book of Exodus. To be a disciple of Christ is to be a student of the Bible, the Bible from which Jesus and the apostles taught. And that Bible is the Old Testament which makes up more than 77% of our Bible. It's almost three and a half times as long as the New Testament. We must know our Bibles. Well, with that brief hiatus from Mark's Gospel, we now return to what is arguably one of the most challenging passages in the Bible, the Olivet Discourse. It's the lengthiest passage of Jesus' teaching in Mark's Gospel, delivered atop the, the Mount of Olives, So just across the Kidron Valley, uh, slightly above and overlooking the Temple Mount. There's simply not enough time in a single Sunday to address every possible interpretation of these 37 verses, so I'll simply note a, a couple of main views as we work through it. But in the end, regardless of how you answer some of the questions that this passage raises, I believe the application for our lives ends up being the same. So Jesus and his disciples, they exit the temple for the last time, the end of that Tuesday, and one of them comments on the the awesome beauty of that temple. Now recall that this is not the temple that Solomon built. That temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And after a generation of exile in Babylon, as we read with Daniel earlier, the Jews began to rebuild Jerusalem. And then in 516 B.C., the initial construction of this temple was completed. But, sadly, it was much smaller and paled in comparison to the glory of Solomon's temple. You can read about that in Haggai chapter 2. However, Nearly 500 years after this temple was built, around 20 B.C., King Herod the Great began a massive, massive renovation campaign that enlarged the new temple to something like twice the size of Solomon's temple. 
genuinely turning it into what has been called the greatest architectural wonder in the Middle East, one of the great wonders of the world. It was something to behold. But as these pilgrims from out of town marvel at its outward glory, Jesus foretells something absolutely unimaginable, saying there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He's not merely teaching that there's nothing of permanence in this world, that every building will eventually be torn down, including the one in which we now gather. That's true. Nothing is permanent. But more is being said here. In response to the disciples' question about when these things will be, Jesus will explain in, in verse 30 that this prophecy regarding the temple's destruction will take place within a generation. That is, within 40 years. And so it did. This was unimaginable to the first century Jew to think that the temple could be destroyed. They viewed the temple as the center of God's creation. It was the focal point of their worship, and it doubled as an impenetrable fortress against any enemies. How could it come down? The stones used for the walls were absolutely massive, but Jesus foretells that they will all come crashing down. Understandably, these disciples, they want to know when this unthinkable event is going to take place and what signs will indicate that it's about to happen. They want to know what's coming. But Jesus first describes all the things that should not be taken as signs that the end is near. Wars and rumors of wars should not alarm them, for they are not signs of the end. Earthquakes and, and famines and the like are all but the beginning of the birth pains. The birth of the new heaven and the new earth. The birth is coming, but it will be a very long labor. of the first century record notable, numerous notable political and military and, and nature-related upheavals that took place in the years leading up to the destruction of that temple in 70 AD. Just as things have continued to take place ever since, earthquakes and famines and wars and rumors of wars, and are still taking place today. These are all signs of a broken world. They are not signs of the start of a new age. We know of a number of numerous attempts to amass Jewish militias in that time to fight the Romans. We know of numerous messianic figures claiming to be sent from God to deliver Israel from the Romans. And this is actually where Jesus begins his discourse. This is his, his first point of emphasis is don't look for signs and don't be seduced by false promises. In the following 37 to 40 years leading up to the destruction of that temple in 70 AD, many people were led astray by individuals claiming that the end of the world had come and that people needed to abandon everything to follow these deliverers, these prophets, whether it be to, to take up arms against the Romans or to, to gather in some particular place or to otherwise place their trust in these false deliverers. And then... At the end of the, as the end of the temple did come, and as it was time to flee from the temple and from Jerusalem, as the Roman armies began to encircle and to lay siege to the city, massive 
massive numbers of people were led astray into believing that God would deliver them if they simply took refuge in His temple. But even though the initial application of these verses seems to be for those awaiting the the end of the temple, the warning still applies to those of us living on the other side of 70 AD and who are awaiting the end of the world. Don't give in to apocalyptic fervor every time war breaks out. Don't give in to apocalyptic fervor every time some maniac threatens the use of nuclear weapons or there is some horrific natural disaster or some so-called expert prophesies a, a climate catastrophe. These are all to be expected. This is the norm. They are simply signs of a broken world, not signs that the end of the world has come. Maybe it has. Maybe it hasn't. It's not for you to know is the point. Don't let fear of what may come derail you from the mission that has been given you. Certainly don't be so foolish as to believe that some supposed miracle worker walking around somewhere on the earth is actually Jesus returned. As the angels announced when Jesus departed from the earth, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus whom was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. As Matthew records in his parallel account of the the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, he says, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. No one is going to be able to miss it. There will be no confusion about whether it's really Him or not. In the meantime, as you wait for that day, don't look for easy ways out of suffering in this world. Don't place your trust in any political or religious deliverers. Don't give in to the charlatans profiteering off of the prosperity gospel. Don't be seduced by false promises. Expect suffering. Now with your Bible still open to Mark chapter 13, look with me at the next section beginning in verse 9. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Just read the book of Acts for a record of these very things. Verse 10, And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you will say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Saved? Saved from what? He just said that some of them would be imprisoned and beaten and put to death by their own family members. So saved from what? Saved, not saved from suffering for Christ in this life, but saved from suffering apart from Christ in the next. Saved from the eternal punishment that our sins demand. For all who endure suffering to the end, For the sake of Christ, without renouncing their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, will be raised from the dead to enter into His glorious kingdom forever. 
on the last day. Now, most interpreters see this section, like the previous section and like the subsequent section, as referring to the first 37 to 40 years of the church age, leading up to 70 A.D. But one verse in particular that I just read has has led a few interpreters to think that Jesus is talking about his, his yet future return at the end of the world, namely verse 10, where it says, "...the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations." One way to read that, that it hasn't taken place yet. However, it should be noted that this language of all nations in Mark and of whole world in Matthew were were commonly used in the first century to refer to the whole civilized world, specifically to the whole Roman Empire. And there are three places in the writings of the Apostle Paul before the mid-60s where he speaks of the gospel as having already been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Colossians 1, verse 6, Colossians 1, 23, Romans 1, 8. So perhaps there is a sense in which it had already been proclaimed to all the nations of the civilized world, meaning the Roman Empire. Even so, regardless of whether this proclamation to all nations was meant to be taken as a, a precondition for the end of the temple or as a precondition for the end of the world, either way, every reader of Mark should see this as a, a call to action to get busy proclaiming this good news of salvation before it's too late for people to repent. But as you do so, as you take this gospel to the nations, don't be surprised when people respond to this message of love with hate. Expect to suffer for the sake of the gospel as you proclaim it to others. Whether in the first century or in the 21st century, the message for every true follower of Christ is this. Don't be surprised by suffering. And specifically, don't be surprised by persecution for identifying with Jesus and for proclaiming His gospel to others. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. As Jesus said in Matthew 10, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, Satan, how much more will they malign those of his household? Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, in the first century, those to whom he was initially speaking, persecution came from various places. Persecution came from the Jews because of the Christians' insistence that Jesus is the Messiah. While persecution came from the Romans because of the Christians' refusal to bow down to pagan gods and to supposedly divine emperors. Such persecution took place before 70 A.D., and such persecution continues in many parts of the world today for the same refusal to worship false gods, whether it be the refusal to worship the gods of the Hindus or the god of the Muslims. In communist nations, the persecution comes for for Christians' refusal to worship the state, insisting upon a higher authority above that of the government. And in the supposedly free and secular West, the persecution Christians face is framed in terms of morality, 
and of what love demands. For example, there's Bill C-4 that passed in Canada a year ago, where by the logic of the law, it should be illegal to even read certain passages of Scripture aloud, ones that condemn homosexual practice, or ones that celebrate heterosexual marriage, or ones that otherwise clarify God's good design for biological gender. And it's explicitly illegal to provide biblical counsel for anyone who is struggling with same-sex attraction or gender confusion. It's illegal. Now, to my knowledge, this law has not yet been enforced in Canada, but the foundation has been laid and the threats have been made in order to silence anyone proclaiming the good news of forgiveness and transformation regarding sins related to sexuality and gender. And in a similar vein, last month in England, a woman was arrested for silently praying outside of a death mill, otherwise known as an abortion clinic. She didn't have any signs. She didn't speak any words. She didn't block anyone's path, all of which would arguably have been appropriate ways to obey the proverb to rescue those who are being taken away to death, hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. But she didn't do any of that. She simply stood off to the side of the clinic. And it wasn't until a police officer got her to admit that she was praying in her head silently that he then arrested her. Now, what is taking place in England and what is taking place in Canada is not yet taking place here, but the tides have turned in that direction. And we must be prepared for what we are likely to face here as well. Dare to speak out against the golden ticket of promiscuity, namely the homicide of preborn children, and you will be targeted. Dare to speak out against one of mankind's most blatant rebellions against the rule and reign of our Creator, namely the claiming that one's gender is self-determined, and you will be targeted. But speak out, you must. For the earthly and the eternal good of your neighbor being led to the slaughter, that they may be saved, no matter the cost, to your own life. Our passage makes clear that this cannot be done in our own strength and in reliance upon our own natural abilities, but only in conscious reliance upon the Holy Spirit that has been given to us, who gives us the words to speak to those who must hear. Trusting that even if you are forced to stand before governors and kings for Christ's sake, it is all part of God's design for you to bear witness before them. Just consider the, the testimony of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, where he, writing from prison, he declares that his imprisonment and his, his trials actually, quote, served to advance the gospel so that the message of salvation in Christ became known throughout the whole imperial guard of Caesar. God had a plan for His imprisonment and His suffering. Suffering may come to you for the sake of the gospel, but trust that God will not waste your suffering. He knows what He is doing. Well, having explained that what they might have thought were signs were not signs, He does speak of one sign of the coming destruction, beginning in verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where He ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. 
Let the one who is on top of the house top not go down, nor enter his house, nor take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. So tragic circumstances. They must flee as soon as they see the abomination of desolation. When he says, let the readers understand, he's not referring to the reader of Mark, but to the reader of Daniel, where Daniel speaks of the abomination that makes desolate. So note that Jesus expects his followers to be readers, specifically readers of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. Now, the Jews of Jesus' day believed those prophecies of Daniel had already been fulfilled about 200 years before this time in 168 B.C. when a foreign king, Antiochus Epiphanes, whose name meant God manifest, when he erected an altar to the pagan god Zeus over the altar of burnt offering in the, in the temple, and he sacrificed a pig on it, an unclean animal. Well, that led to the successful Maccabean revolt in which the Jewish people rose up and cleansed the temple of that great abomination, and that is now commemorated annually with a celebration known as Hanukkah. Now, was Jesus saying that Daniel's cryptic prophecies in Daniel 9.27 and 11.31 and 12.11 about the abomination that desolates, is Jesus saying that those were not ultimately about Antiochus Epiphanes, but about some event after the time of Christ? I, I think that is what Jesus is saying. He's at least saying that something similar was going to happen, as it happened 200 years earlier, celebrated by Hanukkah. And I think he's specifically talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and that he's deliberately drawing attention to the rebukes of God's people in Daniel chapter 9 for telling the coming destruction of the second temple that even had, hadn't even been built yet as God's final judgment upon the nation of Israel. You see, from the time of their liberation from Egypt until the time of their final destruction in 70 AD, the nation of Israel, by and large, had always been a stiff-necked, hard-hearted, stubborn, and rebellious people. I'm picturing all of us. They had refused to repent of their sins and to, to bend the knee to Jesus, the only Savior of the world. Not only had they killed Him, but even after His resurrection from the dead, they still refused, by and large, to follow Him. They sought to harass, imprison, beat, and kill those who did. With the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus, the old covenant had come to an end. The age of the new covenant had begun, but most of the Jews persisted in their daily sacrifices in the temple, ignoring the risen Lamb of God who had been slain for the sins of the world. As we've seen throughout the Gospel of Mark, their, their outward acts of worship in that temple were not being done from the heart. The outward glory of the, the wonderful stones and buildings at which the disciples marveled could not mask the spiritual poverty within its walls. The widows, two small copper coins in the preceding passage, were more precious to God than all that marble and gold. So God finally brought it all to an end. The destruction of the temple and the handing over of the temple mounts to Gentiles to this day 
God removed their ability to live as an old covenant community. He brought biblical Judaism to a decisive end, precisely as Jesus foretold would happen. So what specifically was the abomination of desolation that was to be a sign for the first century Christians? Well, Luke records it as, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. The great Jewish revolt against the Romans began in 66 AD. And the zealots, the Jewish zealots, they didn't, as they began to face the armies that were coming against them, they took refuge in the temple shortly after that in 67 AD. And then the Roman armies finally encircled Jerusalem in 70 AD. They laid siege to the city for five long months before finally burning and destroying that temple. As you read the historical accounts of Josephus and others, the suffering and the carnage were unspeakably horrific. Josephus recorded that, that more than one million Jews were slaughtered during the siege. And yet, it's believed that not a single person who died was a Christian. How could that be? It's because the Christians heeded Jesus' words here in Mark 13. They saw something, probably the approaching Roman, Roman armies. They interpreted it as the abomination of desolation, and they fled as Jesus had instructed them to do. And they were all spared though over a million Jews died. Now looking at verse 19, there might be a shift here in verse 19 to talking about the entire church age following 70 AD. It's hard to be certain. Hear the words, verse 19. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. If the Lord had not cut short the days... No human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Whatever that means, it's clear that humanity, if left to our own devices, would utterly destroy ourselves, and that God does not let that happen for the sake of saving those he has given to Christ. Continuing verse 21. And then... If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Be on guard. Be not deterred by upheavals all around you. Be not seduced by false prophets and deliverers. Be not surprised by suffering or persecution. Looking now at the final section, verse 24, there are some faithful interpreters who, who take these next four verses as still referring to the final blow that set the temple ablaze in 70 AD. And that's a viable interpretation. But most interpreters take these next few verses as a reference to the end of the world. Verse 24, But in those days... After that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Now, you might ask how anyone could think that this already took place in 70 AD. Well, 
There are other examples of this apocalyptic language throughout the Old Testament to refer to the destruction of other world powers that have already taken place, such as the destruction of Babylon by the Persians, foretold in Isaiah 13, with almost identical language to this. So it's possible that this already took place in 70 AD. I don't think so. Verse 26. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. He's obviously drawing attention to the passage from Daniel chapter 7 that Brian read earlier, where the Messiah is referred to as one like a son of man who comes before the ancient of days with the clouds of heaven and is given an everlasting dominion over all creation. Having been given that dominion upon his ascension to heaven, here in Mark, Jesus is describing himself as coming to exercise that dominion on the earth. Now, if verse 26 is a reference to Christ coming to destroy the temple, which some think, then verse 27 about the angels gathering the elect that, that could be a, a reference to the work of Christians to proclaim the gospel to all nations. But if verse 26 is about Christ coming at the end of the world, which I find more likely, then verse 27 about the angels gathering the elect is probably a reference to the final gathering of Christians on the earth who are alive at the time of His second coming and bringing them to be with every Christian who has died already. Verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and it puts out its leaves, well, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that He is near at the very gates. And see what thing's taking place. Jesus has spoken of two signs His followers were supposed to heed. One, the abomination of desolation, which I think is a Roman army surrounding Jerusalem in 70 A.D. in April. And two, the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, which I think is the heavens opening up at Christ's return at the end of the world. So which of these two is he referring to as indicating that he is near at the very gates? Maybe both, but it's at least the first one, as verse 30 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And despite the arguments of some interpreters, I think this generation means this generation, that generation, and that everything he addressed really did take place within 40 years, except for his final coming in the clouds, so that everything necessary for Christ's return was already accomplished in 70 AD, and that nothing precludes him from coming back this very hour. Verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The words of Christ will outlast the earth. They are a more solid foundation than the ground upon which you walk. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Isaiah 40, verse 8. Verse 32 of Mark 13. But concerning that day, that is when the heavens and the earth will pass away, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So don't believe anyone telling you that they know when the end is coming. They don't. 
Don't believe anyone who tells you that some world event is a sign that the end is about to come. That's not for us to know. That's not for the angels to know. That's not even for the Son to know. The only sign that remains is for Christ to appear in the same way as the first disciples saw Him go into heaven. And until that happens, verse 33, finally, be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. What does it mean to be asleep? The parallel passage in Luke speaks of your heart being weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. The parallel passage in Matthew speaks of eating and drinking with drunkards. It's the language of of living for yourself, ignoring the purposes of God, ignoring the needs of those around you as you aimlessly stumble through life serving yourself. To stay awake on the other side is to instead live your life in the light of God's purposes. Live your life in the light of the needs of those around you. You know, the promise of Christ's coming return. Luke adds, stay awake at all times, praying. Praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So whether in the first century or in the 21st century, the message for every true follower of Christ is don't be found sleeping. Pray and proclaim. Pray for the faith to endure to the end. Pray for the courage and the love to continue to bear witness before others regardless of the cost to your life. Pray for the advance of the gospel to all nations. Come and join us this evening as we gather for prayer at 4.30. What would you do differently this year? if you knew that this one was your last on the earth. You would live like it is, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. Let us pray. Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit that you have given us, let us take these things to heart, that we may not be seduced by false promises, that we may not be surprised by persecution, that we may not be found sleeping when Christ returns. Lead us to live faithful lives filled with prayer and proclamation. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.